Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Specialist Risk Group. Today's guests are Warren Downey, Group CEO, and Lee Anderson, Group Deputy CEO of UK-headquartered intermediary Specialist Risk Group, or SRG. Warren was last on the show as part of two very early special episodes that SRG sponsored over three years ago. Back then, SRG was just about to get a new private equity backer in the form of HGGC. Since that change of ownership, the growth has been impressive, with SRG increasing its intermediated premium threefold via a combination of organic and inorganic growth. So far, this makes SRG sound like it's treading a well-worn path of PE-backed consolidation. But that would be to fundamentally misunderstand what Warren and Lee are trying to do with this singular organisation. SRG is a fast-growing broking and MGA platform with very high ambitions, but it is in no way a conventional scale-up play on the hunt for market leverage and cost removal. SRG is best described as a growing collection of very specialist businesses that are all operating in niches, where it's the depth of its specialist knowledge and relevance to very specific markets and not its scale that allows it to compete. Warren and Lee are a brilliant double act, and this is a fascinating and fun insight into a broken group that is building something intentionally different and going out of its way to do unexpected and surprising things. From being agnostic about channels to market, doing M&A differently, running a shadow board or giving staff access to accelerated management programmes and share ownership, there's a huge amount to admire in what this duo is trying to achieve. So listen on. Warren and Lee talk about preferring to show people what they've already done as opposed to telling them what exciting, but as yet unexecuted, plans they have for the future. And this podcast is full to the brim of excellent examples. And on a personal note, I don't think I've had a more fun, lively and down-to-earth duo on the podcast in a very long time. The time will fly past. Enjoy the podcast. Before we start, it does become obvious after a couple of minutes, but just to help you get your bearings, Warren is the one to speak first. Warren and Lee, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Morning. Well, the SRG story has been moving at a very, very fast pace. So I think before we do anything else, you'd better give us an update on where you've got to, because I think the last time we spoke was probably three years ago. Yeah, it's incredible how quickly things move along. And you don't often get a chance to pause and think about where you're up to because you're too busy doing the job. So <laughs> no, but three years ago, well, we were pre-pandemic and we had about 180 people in the company and... We do tend to focus quite a lot on making profit because we can't pay anybody out of revenue or premium. But we were doing, you know, a couple of hundred million of premium and making six or seven million pounds of profit. And to cut a very long story short, there's been a pandemic. We've done a few acquisitions. Yeah, We've done many? a lot of organic growth. A couple of little things have been happening. Slightly lost count. And we've doubled and doubled again. We're through that second doubling number now. So we hope to get to the end of the year. We're gunning for 600 million of premium to market. 600 people and north of 35, 40 million of, of profit. Wow, that's, that's really, really impressive. Something I want to ask you, just because both of you are here in the room, you very much seem to be like a double axe. So how do you get on as personalities? Well, it helps that if you put the two together, we're a whole person. Um, <laughs> there's obviously a good-looking one, intelligent one, strategically-minded one, and that's me. And then there's Lee, and Lee does the other stuff. What is yeah. that exactly, Lee? Yeah, well, I'm the one that's rooted in reality, Mark. And uh, as you can see, so someone else is slightly delusional. Mm. But no, we, we spend a lot of time together. So you hum it and he sings it. Exactly, yeah. It's the, it's the double act with two straight men. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about 
the ideas that we had originally and the ideas mm -hmm. that we're trying to put in place now. And Warren has a thousand ideas a day and once a year he has a good one. And <coughs> we're trying to make have a bit of fun. We're trying to have a bit of fun, what we're doing. It helps that we knew each other. I think starting the, this sort of journey together was probably a bit less scary. But, I mean, how long did you work together before? It wasn't that long, was it? Actually? It wasn't super long. And like typical blokes, you know, we worked together for a few years and then had a few years where we didn't have any contact at all. And in the circumstances of Marsh buying JLT really gave mm. birth to a lot of things that we're doing here. Not because we're trying to, you know, get the band back together, but because there were some elements of that business that are worth copying, along with a bunch of things you wouldn't want to do. So I think we've always started with slightly idealistic, which is what would it feel like to turn up, come to work, work together? What would we do and what wouldn't we do? And as often happens in the busyness or the stress and strains of building a business, you have to keep reminding yourself how you started and what the original idea was. That's quite a male trait, isn't it? Certainly not a female trait, that male friends can easily not see each other for five years, but when you finally get back together, it's like nothing had happened. Yeah, that's funny. Although it was different in those days, wasn't it? We were in each other's orbit, weren't we, for a lot yeah. longer, actually, to be yeah. fair. We worked yeah. closer together for probably less than two years, probably. Yeah. But you're right, absolutely. You cannot speak for five or six years and then have a hug. And when you meet in the street and... Uh, <laughs> if I stand in the box, we can have a hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lee, irritatingly, has a bit too much editorial control over things like our website. And I noticed that we have these lovely photos taken for our new website. Uh, and he, last minute, decided we should have a picture together, as we're a bit of a double act. But he only did it so that he could be towering over me on the website. <laughs> I think well, height is the thing you did mention to me that I, I seem taller than I sound Yeah, you're a radio. lot more handsome in real life, Mark, I have to say. And, <laughs> got a face and, for radio, and, is he? Yeah, yeah face for <laughs> and uh, a lot taller. Yeah, I did say that. I have to say, I suppose it is a little bit about us today, but it's been really great to see the development of Voice of Insurance. And we were an early supporter because... You were, I'm um, really grateful for you for that because obviously I sort of started my own business and jumped off a cliff and then this pandemic happened. So it didn't always seem like a very good idea, but you, <laughs> you believed in it very early, which was very, very helpful, extremely helpful. So. You know, a few things we did in those early days, I think, I think because we were new and we were conscious that there were other people doing new things and different things, yeah. we kind of felt a bit of an alliance one of my first audio advertisers was Prime Insurance. Very, yes. So it was sort of, I was doing something a bit maverick, you were being a bit maverick, and they're very maverick. And I think we all seem to seek each other out. And uh, so all your customers, maverick. Yeah. Are you trying to build a maverick business? I think maverick is a word for it. Lee, you tend to talk about being surprising. Yeah, I mean, when we started, we decided that we didn't want to try and be so trite as to have a mission statement that said that we would be the biggest or the best or the most well-respected, because at that point, the business was an idea on a PowerPoint slide, really. But it's important to measure yourself against something. So th we decided early on that the thing we would try and measure ourselves against would be that lens of surprising. Can we do things that people are surprised by in the way we approach something, in the people that join us, in some of the smart moves that we've made, particularly some of the acquisition activity that we've, we've Because also, done. from sitting from the outside, it's so easy to say there is a category. As a journalist, we have to try and categorise and pray see and make sense of the world. And obviously, we're always oversimplifying in one way or another, but we sort of have to. You know, mid-sized reinsurer, large reinsurer. Uh, we, we all do it in our own way, don't we? We, yeah. we used to call Marshall and Willis as that as one company. But, you know, you, you could fit into the PE-backed consolidator, but you seem to be doing something, you are consciously trying to be different, or maybe sometimes you just are different because we're all different anyway. But so there's a big pack of broker consolidators. So what's different and what's surprising? I mean, we talk about that we're not a consolidator. 
partly because we don't consolidate. <laughs> and between Warren and I, we are still the originators of any of the M&A activity we do. But it's part of what we do. It's not our main job. So the whole model hasn't been built around the necessity, the requirement to acquire businesses. In fact, the filter we use, and you know it, Mark, in terms of the sort of people that we like to approach and the capabilities that those businesses have, it means we're never going to acquire 100 businesses. There probably aren't 100 businesses that would match our culture and our specialisms. So not volume. You're not really interested in volume per se. No, I mean, we are a collection of volume niche, if you like. If you look at our 600 million of premium that, that Warren referred to, we haven't got hundreds of millions of anything. If you see what I mean, it's a collection, it's a portfolio of tens, 20 millions of niche product, really, or niche industry responses. I think we have still managed to date to acquire most businesses directly. We do buy some through advisor route, but most we do direct. That's a different kind of process. It must take a lot longer because obviously we've lot- got intermediaries, they're bringing things to you, aren't they? Quite. I mean, we don't have anything against advisors. It's just a very different process, as you rightly say. But we have a process which I think is different. We're told that it's quite different to the way that other people approach it. don't really want to talk about it too much and give it all away, but I think in the way we interact, in the way we deal with lots of the things that arise in that process. Do you want to target businesses that you've always liked, that we, we know? When we started this thing, we didn't have an end state in mind, but we did have a list of areas that we thought would be interesting to be in. So if you're who we were at the outset, you'd say, well, we don't want to go head to head with some of the biggest, most well-resourced companies in the world. So looking at segments where scale is not a prerequisite to compete is a great opening position for us. And as we've gathered those people and specialisms around us, it's become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we have done 12, 13 transactions in three and a half years. I think there are some people that do that in a quarter. So there's a clue in that. That's not through lack of effort. That's through deciding how many things are genuinely interesting, genuinely specialist, genuinely growing, have got a lot of their best times ahead of them, not behind them, and have got a cultural fit that means that we can do more together than we could do apart. So you go directly to them, it means you must know them, or at least you've got your foot in the door by, by some contact. And what's your pitch to them? Join us, it's, because it'll, it'll be better if we're all together. Is that, is that the thing? It's really interesting. Uh, that gets asked a lot, actually, internally. How does it start? We don't really pitch in the traditional sense. Certainly now. I think at the outset when I mean, we... Do you wait for people to come to you then? No, no, no. What, so what I mean is we have a conversation. We tell them what we, we're doing. We tell them what we're doing. That's the point. We talk about what we do and we ask about what they do. And people are surprised, Mark, that often you can't pinpoint the exact moment where the conversation flips into a potential acquisition conversation because it's just a long, ongoing dialogue. And it turns out, funnily enough, we don't need to go to business school to know this, that building a business that's got people and culture as its beating heart, followed by specialism, and then being pretty agnostic about how you distribute, there's no living rule against that. So the more effectively you're doing that, the more attractive it is to people to join. Yes, that's another thing. Another feature of your group is, do you have any particular philosophy about being direct or wholesale or whatever channel you're using? It doesn't seem to be. We've said that people and culture first, specialism second, and channel or distribution method third. And there are specialisms where we think that we hold unique knowledge, information, or people that mean that the ideal place for distribution is through an MGA model, through our underwriting business, MX Underwriting. But there are other specialisms where we think, absolutely, this is a wholesale distribution model or a, or a retail or, or international. And so we've always said, it's the specialism that's interesting to us. How we distribute it has got to be based on the specialism, not what's out there or available. 
that's one of the big changes actually Mark. I think when we first spoke the group as it was would have been 95 percent wholesale broking business yeah the, the numbers Warren's mentioned there for this year we think we'll end up at something like 40 percent retail this year 20 percent mostly uk and one all, all, UK, all, all uk all uk for yep. retail 20 percent uk wholesale which would be in the traditional miles smith business yes uh 20 percent international wholesale and then 20 percent mx underwriting and as warren said you know sometimes we have a product that only exists in one of those channels sometimes two sometimes three sometimes three but in different territories that's right i, th- I think we are looking for the best access to market to make the biggest difference for a client and sometimes that's underwriting, sometimes it's retailing, sometimes it's wholesaling. So we are less religious about that. In fact, when we look at it now, we did say that we would like to have a little bit more retail and alternative distribution models than purely wholesale. I mean, if you press pause this year, it happens to be 40, 20, 20, 20, which sounds very strategic, but it's accidental. It depends on what came up, what things have accelerated, what things have become available and how we've done organically. And if you combine those things, we just happen to be a slightly more balanced business today. But to get to round that back on the subject of M&A, we think of ourselves as being an organic growth business that occasionally does M&A. In terms of those brands, SRG is the prime brand, and you've still got Mal Smith. When you're talking to someone who perhaps they're very anxious, they've built a business over 20 years, I mean, would it be subsumed into SRG? They should expect that, or do you think they could keep their name above a door somewhere? We look at that in two different ways. I think when we are building a UK retail business with a bit of scale and depth. Actually, we generally find that people want to be part of SRS, but especially as insurance solutions, because it's a successful, fast-growing, especially retail business. But where somebody's brand has equity in itself in its marketplace, you'd be bonkers to fiddle with the brand too much. Now, if you put everything that we bought on a page, on a big slide, you'd see that there's a green thread, because that's our colour, you know, a green thread running through them all. You could see they're all part of us. And at the bottom somewhere, it says a specialist risk group company. But we're not obsessive about brand. This brand didn't exist three years ago. We're obsessive about people and culture and specialism. Do you know the story about our colour, Mark? Our green? No, no, no. I mean, it looks very fetching. Well, we pretty much came up with everything, the names and the brands and logos and the colours, everything, over the course of a day, locked away in the office, trying to decide on a few things. And this whole people culture idea came through to run through the whole business. And we thought green was a nice colour, fresh, new... And we decided that would be our colour. We need to give it a name because we weren't quite sure originally whether it was a bluey green or a lighter green or whatever. And we've got an absolutely fantastic marketing team led by Annie Wakeman, who's one of our original heroes when we joined the business. And one of her top team is a brilliant executive called George Green. So we've named the colour. Our, our corporate colour is called George Green. So as Warren said, what we tend to do is if we don't change someone's logo, we will find a way of Subtly inserting yeah. the green, George, some, George Greening. George, George Green, exactly. That's really interesting. Yes, and she makes her an invaluable employee because she can never leave. Otherwise, this story is completely ruined. So don't use that against us, Georgia. But they're doing amazing. So I can't believe you finished this one. Oh, that's well, good. as long as you've got it written down, you know, which CMYK numbers it's got, then you just make sure you don't lose that because it's very hard to suddenly start replicating it. I mean, we are insurance people, so we were surprised to hear that colours have numbers, but we're learning as we go. We're learning, <laughs> we're learning the art of marketing and we own LinkedIn. I feel like we've got LinkedIn covered. Absolutely. Um, You're very good on social media. Now, you don't want to be described as a consolidator, but you did consolidate your MGAs into the MX brand to go to market. What was behind that? Was it just to make it something easy to sell to brokers to say, right, come here, this is MX? Do you know, it's really interesting. I'd never really thought about it. Because I suppose, you know, an MGA has to market itself 
more than a broker in some ways, isn't it? Because it has to market itself to brokers to make it clear. I think, to be completely honest, Mark, until you'd ask a question, I don't think I'd really thought about it. Somehow, with retail, that brand strategy seemed to just kind of make sense when we started making the pushes in that space. And for MX, similarly, it just seemed the right thing to do. So MX is the overall MJ brand. Then we have MX Commercial, MX Underwriting, and MX Europe. The three sort of pillars under that brand, but it just felt right. I think we did recognise that the customer base is different, and the team themselves wanted to coalesce around a single thing that they could be part of. I think there are a couple of bits of our approach to MGA business which are again different and shouldn't be surprising, but probably are surprising in the modern era. I mean, one is that we don't have any brokers with a pen. This is an entirely underwriter-staffed business, and. The other thing is we write very little, if any, of our own business. Mm-hmm. This is a third-party capacity provision of specialist products to the wider market. And if you put 40% of the income out of your own portfolio into your own MGA, it's not that. It's something else. Yeah. And we took the decision to, again, be slightly purist at the outset. So it's a real underwriting business. It's a real underwriting it. business. We're rewarded you know, predominantly on underwriting results. We're staffed by underwriters and we don't write our own business. And they have to be on a different floor and they've got their own reception and that kind of thing. Well, once upon a time when we figure out our London, you know, occasionally when you have conversations about how it's going and the numbers sort of don't lie and we've had a really good run. But there are things that are very imperfect, apart from Lee's beard. And one of them is that our office space is just a mess because we've been growing very quickly and you think, oh, that's fantastic. It's never the right size. It's never the right size. They're never in the right location and it doesn't quite trigger. But we'll get there. There will be a moment when we'll have uh, two front of houses, one kitchen. And on that acquisition strategy, again, so is it to say that you're wanting to build something incredibly diversified and eclectic almost? Is that what you want to do? Or would you want to go deeper into some of the things you're already really specialist in and think, well, we almost own this space, but if we acquire that one, we really will own this space at some point? It's a bit of both? It's a bit of both. We research segments we're interested in, sometimes a bit overly done. But we have got on the shelf, we've got probably market reviews of three or four segments that we're not in and that we're really interested in, but we haven't quite spotted the entry point or that it's not the right time in the cycle or in that evolution of that sub-segment. Well, yeah, the broker you really got your own doesn't want to sell. Yeah, I mean, some of it is about building teams from absolute scratch and gathering people from different companies in a similar specialisms to build something completely new organically. And we do have that blend of the speed with which you gather an acquisition's results under your own, which is day after you complete, and ones where we sort of look a lot more like patient capital building out one step, one employment at a time. And you've got to do a bit of both. But it always comes back to winning new business, hanging on to the clients you've got and being a bit different. When you're looking at your growth plans, how much will be that more organic? Let's build something in this space. Let's get the best team leader and let them build their team and support them. At the moment, the people to compete with in our organisation is the retail business. Hmm. The retail business is just cooking on gas, as they say. You know, it is punching above its weight. It's winning business of significance every month. It's 15 plus percent up year on year pure organic. So we say organic is the top prize. And then we buy things that augment it or that we can get into a new area with. Yeah, I think that's the important part, isn't it? One of the things we decided that we would try and only talk about things that we've done rather than set out grand plans of the things we're going to do to get into a tempo of stuff. So those projects we're looking at, people never see the ones that we shelve or we just hold in abeyance or we do a bit more research on. 
we've probably always got at least four or five things on the go. I think there's one we're going to probably announce quite yeah. soon. There'll be others that we may or, or may not do. But I think probably it's fair to say that now that we have a bit more scale in each of the individual pillars, it makes it a bit easier to start building up from a people base yeah. rather than just having to acquire because you've, you know, you've got a nice stable you've got, yeah, you've got infrastructure. Yeah, and I think you, you know, if you're a market-leading team in a specialism and three and a half years you were saying to yourself, well, where does my future lie? Who am I going to join? Where can I make my way? You know, we wouldn't have been on the list because we weren't really there. We weren't on that sort of playing field. But I think now we tend to think about things we're doing is to create a natural home for specialist. In fact, we say in M&A announcements, don't we? It's a natural home for specialist people and companies. So there's a little bit more inbound than there was. There's a little bit more people thinking about joining an exciting fast growth platform than there was. So it's that interesting phase where we've put a lot of things in place. We built a single operating platform for the whole group. And we're now just starting to get into our stride and get the benefits of that. So any specialists out there listening, you know who to call. I'll put their contacts at the bottom. Who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> we'll put your contacts at the bottom in, in the right. notes. Thank you. That's very Quite good. Right. Obviously, you're out there in the market. You don't seem like the sort of people who get into bidding wars, you know, when an investment banker comes calling around, so do you want to join this Dutch auction or not? But have you noticed anything now we're in a higher interest rate environment? Have you noticed that slightly less competitive on the acquisition front? Um, Wishful thinking, you want it to be less competitive. but I think the one thing with our background that's quite useful at the moment is discipline. So a bit of price and discipline. So last year, particularly, there were some fantastic, actually, some really, truly fantastic businesses that decided to change their investor last year, which was at the, some would say, was potentially at the peak of pricing as well. And that doesn't scare us insofar as we were talking about this morning, actually, weren't we? That often when things get difficult in that environment, you just, there's a flight to quality. So a good business, a quality business, so you can I think, yeah, always find- always worry about overpaying, but in the long term, you can't really overpay for a really great business because it pays you back pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think we worked quite hard on a couple of very, really quality, quality business. And we did, didn't get there and we didn't get there on price. And we had to look at ourselves and decide whether, as you say, do you make that push or not? And this year, as you'll you have seen, Mark, it's slightly different. We've got quite a rich pipeline of, of opportunities this year. We like to focus on deal structure more so than just, I think it, it does a disservice to just think that everyone just talks about a multiple of an EBITDA and that's the language that's used. There's lots of ways of making a deal work for an interested entrepreneurial Is that party. because they get more of the upside with you, with the new group, and they roll more in? Well, the thing we always say is, unless we can do something better together than we could do apart, then there's no point doing a deal. You can't, how do you price that? So we don't want to own things. That's not the model. So you know, An asset manager. Yeah, I mean, that's boring, isn't it? Oh, we don't know, because we're not those people. You know, and fundamentally, we are insurance people. So we know how to win a client, serve them properly, hang on to them, give them more specialisms to tap into. And we respect things like the private equity industry, but we have some backing that comes from that world. But our world is the world of organic growth. And the subtle difference I'd make to your comment about buying quality businesses, Mark, is that quality businesses that just carry on growing and buy down their own purchase price, that's of some interest to us. But what is of most interest to us is businesses that join us. And together, as Lee says, we do something crazy, you know, something fantastic, something surprising. We've done that on a number of acquisitions where we've got to the end of a couple of years of the typical structure with a bit of deferred consideration. And we've been just delighted to write those deferred consideration checks because those businesses have 
blown the doors off in terms of growth and launched in new territories and launched new products and cross-sold into other parts of the group. Those are our best stories. Not only the quality of the business coming in, but what we do together. You mentioned this intention to acquire in Europe, in continental Europe. How's that going? And might we see further global expansion? Global domination, yeah. I think it's interesting. About the time that we spoke three years ago, we also did a bit of a market launch. And we got, I'd have to say, a blend of the insurers that were supporting elements of the initial group and also people that we've known for many years in the market. And we said, this is who we are. This is what we're going to do. And this is kind of how we should be known. I think the only thing we really said was that we try and be a top 20 broker within five years because we thought somebody will want to say something about the future. And we asked the market to sort of trust us and work with us as we grow. And we are really conscious, again, with Lee mentioned earlier, that we don't talk about things we're going to do, but things we've done. So three years later, we got the market together again, two, three weeks ago, and we marked our own homework live. And we said, this is what we said. Here's the slide deck. Look how dated it looks, despite only being three years old. <laughs> and these are things we said we'd be known for. This is what's going well. This is what's different, uh, what we weren't expecting. And this is what's not going so well. And, you know, we've all been in management presentations where every three years you get a brand new shiny plan. And we wanted to sort and of... Very little update on the... Yeah, the, very, very the little revisiting. Of, quite, exactly. Quite. Almost never. So we did that. But one of the things we said in that was that we had anticipated at this stage we'd probably be a more internationally present business than we are. And I think between COVID, definitely, but there was way more opportunity in our backyards than we thought. The reality is that a people and culture-oriented fast-growth specialist has a very, very rich vein of opportunity in our home market. And sometimes you listen to people talk about the consolidation of the UK market and the M&As disappearing and everyone's been bought. Well, the people saying that are saying it about people that don't want to sell to them. Whereas we've found that the conversations we have with people are perhaps conversations, they've battered everyone off for five years, and then they hear something quite different. Because the UK and Ireland is going so well, it puts a heightened pressure on us to ensure that the first deal we do outside of there is the right deal. Yeah. And Mark, to avoid it looking random, if we suddenly, oh, great to announce a seven-man team in Poland doing motor, I don't get it. So what we have found... And this is one of our projects that we've been referring to. We've spent a lot of time and there are some genuinely fabulous businesses in Europe, culturally, that match ours, our culture, and product base, which is very, very similar. Ones that, frankly, I didn't even really appreciate existed. So it's true they say there's, there's no new ideas. You know, there's just people interpreting in different ways in their, in their home market. So I think we really want to do that. I think we both have some experience worn on the ground on the continent. So I think... That's probably the most likely. Yes. But as you say, it's a high benchmark, the quality and growth we've had in our backyards. And therefore, also the further away you go, probably the more substantial the move needs to be. Yeah. Because you don't want to be trying to oversee things from far away. You want to employ fantastic people. Little outposts. Unless unless they're in absolutely delightful places to visit, frankly. Yeah, no, we're comfortable (laughs) with the idea of opening in North Vietnam. But probably the thing to say as well is that we like to follow specialisms where they take us. So we will have outposts that are in location to make the best of a global specialist opportunity. And so it, it is different in that sense. If you, actually, there's a good example. I mean, just putting some threads together there, Mark, you mentioned about acquisitions and specialty and, and trying to be surprising international. If you look at what we did with our insolvency business, our corporate recovery business, we acquired a team from an underwriting business. We converted it into a retail business that we retail in the UK, we back it by three-year rolling delegated capacity. 
retail in UK, wholesale in Ireland and Europe. It is a very small leap to then say, well, let's take that same principle to the same common law countries yes. where the insolvency laws are exactly the same. To me, that would be completely strategically consistent, not random, and would make complete sense for our model. And that, I think that's what we want to say by follow the specialism. We don't need to have a flag anywhere in the world. But once we're there, we'll figure out what other things you know lend themselves sure. to that. Sure. But we'll be delighted to have a group of specialists trying to do something internationally together. Yeah, so it could be very wholesale to start could with. Well yeah, could be. Or does that actually make we don't mind. sense? We don't mind. It, it's funny, isn't it? You spend years listening to people. I guess you talk to a lot of people about their strategy and their overarching thinking. And there's quite a lot of, we find, quite a lot of discussion around channel. Whereas if you just go up a level and say, well, what do you want to be known for? You know, the purpose of this company, written on the wall outside this room is to build the kind of company we're proud to tell our friends and family about. So if that's your starting point, then you go down to specialism after people in culture go to specialism, then you know which of your channels you use is kind of a detail question. It's not an overarching strategy question. There is a place you use for the right channels to get to the right yeah. the things you want. Yeah. Right. You know, we've got some businesses in our group where their number one customer is Marshall and Willis. And we've got some businesses in our portfolio where the clients are mid-cap UK companies in a very deep and narrow specialism. And that is because we are, I suppose you sort of said eclectic, we think about channel agnostic. Let's go and do specialisms. Right. No, I absolutely get that. Now that you've built quite a lot, you mentioned before a bit about the infrastructure build. Isn't your department, Lee, more? It depends how difficult the question is. Have you had any benefits of that scale? And I hate the word synergies because it sounds like you're just laying people off. But what I really mean is efficiency. Have you been able to get some of that? I'm presuming that's been a part of what you do. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, we don't have the cost synergies that you would naturally associate with a volume consolidator because that's not our model. So yeah, everyone's so specialised. Because everyone's so specialised. We build our thing called Platform, which is effectively where people can plug into our group resources to help them grow their business during their deferred periods, et cetera, et cetera. And that can be marketing, project support, IT, et cetera. We are seeing GWP per head Revenue per head increasing quite substantially. That's what you would expect, you know, because you're not multiplying costs. I think our central cost base is reducing as a proportion of the overall. But again, we've made big investments in getting, particularly last year and first year, actually first year and, and last year, senior leadership in those positions to drop to drive businesses forward. So those are the main synergies we get. We're not really a bash insurers over the head type model. You don't know, so say, well, we'd suddenly get extra two points of commission because it's us. No, well, I mean, I think that's probably why. Whenever you say the word consolidator, we probably unrealistically are subtle and sort of slightly wince because you know what it's like. You sort of categorize people and we think consolidating premium for two points more commission is the opposite of what we're doing. We're not consolidating premium, we're gathering specialists. So we've never found a business where we didn't need all the people in it. And presumably these are very niche classes where you're adding a huge amount of value and you probably these are not big loss ratio businesses right. and yeah. where so in and, fact and, a bit and, of commission's and, and not really out the hill there. If you, if you look at our growth model. It's, it's difficult. You don't want to compare to an old model, but the best way to avoid having to do cost takeouts is growth. If you grow and you've got good people, people take on greater responsibilities, they take on greater bandwidth, you can expect more. Solves all ways. problems. Solves problems. I read a great quote last week, actually, which I quite liked on the holiday. Was it from me? It wasn't from you. And it was, happiness is not the absence of problems. <laughs> Thank God. Which I think is, is really good, because if you listen to us, sometimes you'd think everything was perfect, and that's not reality, and you can't strive for perfection. There are some weeks where we laughingly say it's a series of problems interrupted with meals. You know, it's not all glorious 
progress. Well, for people, sure, people like problems. If the Times didn't publish its crossword, I think it would be an absolute revolution. Yeah, so I mean, true. You know, we wouldn't mind would having a week with just had crosswords offices. in it, though. Those are like, <laughs> I learned something about quizzes. Actually. I watched the One Percent Club, and I realised that I'm really good at the like last ten percent, but the really obvious ones. My girlfriend's laughing about how I go out in this sort of second, third round, but always get the last two right. Something, my brain is clearly working. There's something <laughs> wrong. There's something wrong there, Lee. I don't know how to tell you. Yeah, it needs some more of a common touch, Lee. Yeah, so, yeah I'm, I'm just completely aloof, clearly. You need to <laughs> listen to yeah, more commercial I've always thought of you as an aloofer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe too, too many insurance podcasts. Yeah, oh, never, too, never too many more. The other big thing that now in this digital age, as it is finally properly digitising, and you've got this huge lake of data... For other brokers in, in similar positions, and now we've got follow form capacity, they're able to say, right, we can package up 12% of our business and it'll go to XYZ syndicate, follow only kind of facility. That would have raised a lot of eyebrows 15 years ago or 10 years ago. We know when it started because that was in that post-Spitzer environment and people didn't really want to be doing that could yep. be seen doing that kind of thing. And now obviously that's completely normalized now and everyone understands that's just efficiency and it's a good way of doing things. Presumably because you're so eclectic, though, you can't really do that, or can you? There are digital opportunities. For example, I had Alex Powell of Aegis on the show, yep. and you'd be so surprised, you know, very traditional Lloyd's business, but at the same time doing tons of deductible buyback business online. Yep. And you think, oh, that's quite hairy, isn't it? But it shows that some of the most specialist and niche things really can be done, can be done in quite high volume as well, and profitably. Sure. Where it's most relevant to us, I think, is we're in the sort of middle, or hopefully past the middle, of looking at how we do capacity within MX underwriting. And that is a statistical, loss-driven, structural question, which I think roll back five-plus years, you'd be, have your finger in the air a little bit. You know, as brokers always struggle to get good data out of insurers, so you'd be doing your very best to sort of describe what you think is going on in the portfolio, whereas now it's much more factual. You can put scenarios over it, you can try different structures, and that will hopefully have resulted in a somewhat groundbreaking approach to capacity within MX underwriting, which wouldn't have been possible in the old pre-data, big data lake world. Well, what about things like some of the specials, you know, asbestos removers, one of the things you're most famous for? Surely you could have some pre-loaded capacity for that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the capacity that supports products that we are known for is often exclusive. It's often... Certainly the coverage styles are exclusive and we will have been distributing product for that carrier on an exclusive basis for many, many years. We ask carriers for exclusivity and differentiation before we ask them for money. And so that's our big ask because we'd rather fuel our organic growth machine. You want a better product. Yeah. You know, we're not against the principle of the fact that we trade significant volumes of premium to the market and if a insurer puts their mind to it, we can help them do their annual budgeted growth. But it needs to be through doing something different and surprising in specialisms that we can distribute. You talk a lot about culture so far. What's your definition of it? Obviously, because particularly when you're gathering together a bunch of people who didn't know each other before, what's the sort of the first things that you want them all to be doing together or the first sort of bit of essence that you want them to pick up? Yeah, it's the easiest thing to feel. And the hardest thing to describe. I've never read a mission statement that felt true. You yeah. know, yeah. But yeah. I've worked in places where it feels great, and you don't really have to throw away it. lines, aren't they? It's yes. very easy to say, you know, we, we're people for Well, you have to say, well, in in a hundred small ways, it becomes true, not in one grand statement. So we would say, for example, if a business is fast growing and believes it has a differentiated culture, what is it going to do to sustain it despite scale? Part of our answer to that is that we 
have a very sophisticated development program for the high performance, high potential people in the business. We've had 28 people one way or another go through that program. People that come off it get responsible for businesses and teams. It's, for want of a better term, it's a sort of a mini live MBA. It runs 15, 18 months. There's a lot of time with Lee and then you get a bit me at the end. There's a lot of time spent with both external coaching as well as business skills. And we're doing the thing for those people that we probably never really got ourselves before you get your first management job, which is an insight into some of the core skills and attitudes and knowledge that you need. And our goal is to put the vast majority, 70% of all our management appointments, we want to be internal. So if you're a people and culture business and you're growing fast and you don't have a development program for high potential people, then you're fibbing because it's not possible. We have a... It's because you've become the headhunter's best friend. Yeah. But, um, yeah well, what you're doing really is work. you're bringing every other culture every time you do something, you're <laughs> diluting your culture. So that's one example. Another one is that everyone in the company has the same personal objectives. We all encourage to hit our numbers, but also to be good colleagues. And we give multiple chances to hit your numbers, but we're a bit less tolerant on the good colleague one. We've got a shadow board, a next co to shadow sort of the ex co, and that is made up of people that have perhaps been on the hypo program or actually were ahead of that scheme and are now looking to their next stage of their career development. Again, fueling So you get to see the same monthly numbers and things that you see? They see the full pack. That's fantastic. That's really, I've never heard anyone do that before. We also have on all our individual business ex-coms, we have, we call it an attendance person, which is someone who we want to experience what it's like to be part of a board. Because, you know, the first time I did it, the first Mm. time you did it, the first time, it's, it's hard, and you don't know the language, the technology, the tempo, the it's cadence. intimidating. It's intimidating. So we give people experience of that. Take the mystery out of it. Take the mystery out of it, and you, know, you have to be very careful who you obviously include in those conversations. But they are run as full-on, unabashed, minuted meetings, and it's to give people more experience of that. And, and we said at the start, when we first joined, I certainly did, almost went straight into the, okay, let's find out who the terrorists are. You know, it's sort of negative kind of corporate... Well, it's, it's also know. quite sensible habit if you've been blown up a few times. Yeah. Right? You well, need to see yeah, where the yeah. unexploded yeah. bombs are in any boardroom. There's fir- always one. In those first few weeks, <laughs> we would we didn't actually spend a great deal of time together, did we? Because we were rushing around the business and we'd we'd catch up on a Friday and we would say, who have you met? We had this list and we actually very quickly realised it's much more fun looking for heroes than it is looking for terrorists. Yeah. And then almost immediately afterwards, the very first person we recruited was our people and culture director, Joanne Wright, who's been absolutely amazing and been instrumental in making the idea a reality. And Mark, you could do a whole podcast on it. It's the first agenda point in every meeting that we attend. When we chose our majority investor this last Mm -hmm. transaction, we prioritised an investor that understood that in a business where your only asset goes home every day and comes in as a volunteer the next day, that they don't think it's strange for us to be talking about people and culture all the time and prioritising that in terms of investment and time and, and effort. And we found in that investor our mirror in the private equity world because they themselves are known to be that. For some brokers, an inquisitive broker with a backer, obviously at some point they have to realise a capital gain or something. They have to, you know, you might have to swap in someone else. Do you feel, is there an end game? You know, is there a clock and, or calendar? Do you feel that there's a time limit on, on this relationship? I mean, I have to say that we've really enjoyed working with HGGC. They it's are good, amazing. They are really good people and we, we feel very blessed to have a partner like them. The reality, though, for our business is that we set out a plan three, three and a half years ago, mm-hmm. which we are executing. And it's noteworthy that we refer to things like M&A and growth over the life of our involvement with the business. 
not in the life of this particular investor. Yeah, good point. So I can't remember which of the deals were done under which of the ownerships because it doesn't really matter. HGGC, as much as we love engaging with them, I think very few people, if anyone in our business, have ever met them. They don't sit on our operating board mm-hmm. where we talk about clients, client interest, market risk and trade. compliance and trade because they would add very little to that conversation. We do have good interaction with them around things like M&A and clever structuring mm-hmm. and things like that where they're cleverer than us. But we know how to run an insurance breaking business and that's what we're doing. And so the way we think of investors is that we will have numerous changes in that field of investors over time. Sometimes we'll have a straight swap out. Sometimes it'll be perhaps selling a minority to someone else who's got a slightly longer time frame. But whilst you're growing and executing your plan, then you are much more in control of what that looks like in the future. I like the fact we've only ever had one plan. I quite like that. Yeah. The plan is the plan. Yeah. You know, the actors may change. Yes. The plan is the plan. Yeah. Nick, and what about employee ownership? Do you want to keep growing that, one presumes? Yes, we've got about 25% yep. employee ownership in the group today. And that has been fantastic. I mean, that's of 100%. And what sort of percentage of employees are? Uh, 25% of employees. Of employees. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's we, ha- well, yeah, we really have good. Yeah. We've toyed with the idea of, of the 100% model, but we've decided to focus, to a little bit more focus. And especially in times like this, where I think times are very challenging, you know, jam tomorrow, which can sometimes be the play around giving people of equity is, I'm going to give you this because I'm not going to give you anything now. We've spent a lot more time making sure that the vast bulk of our people are well remunerated in the meantime. And we've done some things related to cost of living in the last six months that we're proud of, where people feel like it's not just on the by and by. There's often that problem in a business that's growing really well, and you can see it on paper. And it's sort of, would you have maybe think of an internal market, that kind of thing? We haven't got that far in it. I think, yeah. you know, people that were investors when we arrived, mm. when we sold from Pollen Street Capital into HGGC, generally speaking, that was a very good day yeah. for those shareholders. <laughs> you know, it was a very good day. Usually for the tax man, unfortunately. Yeah, well, well, there is that. But it was a good day for the people that had equity. And you do notice when you look around the market where people have not had that good underlying growth, haven't executed strategy well, but I had a change of investor or have been absorbed into something, that hasn't necessarily been a good day for all the stuff. When we think about value creation, it's not through the lens of private equities return, but it's in our ability to attract, recruit and retain brilliant people and make sure they feel part of a success story. And to do that, we will need different kinds of investment at different times and at the moment, we enjoy very much the one we've got. What do you think you've learned so far on this journey? Cool, that's a good question. I said the other day at that market briefing that the difficult things were easier than we thought. And the <laughs> things we thought would be easy were more difficult than we thought. And it's a kind of a nice line, but there's some truth in the fact that, and this is a shout out to all our previous bosses, but we learned that our bosses in the past weren't doing nothing. Now, we knew they weren't really doing nothing, but we thought we were doing an awful lot. But what we probably underestimated was their input in the top five most difficult things we were facing. Yeah, the invisible work. Yeah. Write your 15 most difficult things you're doing. Well, you get quite a lot of help with the top five if, if you've got a boss. And we haven't really got a boss. We, we hold each other to account and we've got investors, but there's no one to refer things to. And that was a real surprise. And it's not as, as easy as, you know, the glory of being CEOs, deputy CEOs. It's the buck stops and there's no one to pass it to. And that is being tough. Then you get more satisfaction when you solve those problems. You do. But again, you know, let's, we don't want to be glossing it all over. That is a burden. 
because it's a people and culture oriented business, we feel a great burden of responsibility to our own people. We realize that some of the decisions we make will make a difference to how those people's lives look. And we take that super seriously. Having said that, there are the difficult things, but some of the things we thought would be really tricky, like doing acquisitions, having not really done that many before in our careers and building a high quality, specialist, fast growing business that everyone's excited about. We found, to be honest, a little bit easier than we thought. (laughs) I mean, that's not to be arrogant. We're having fun. We're describing the fun we're having to people that would like to be part of something that's growing, having fun. And they join us and then we do deliver on that. And that has been a little bit more straightforward. Do the right things in the right way and roughly the right style and you get the right result. I'm going to coin a phrase that one of our original investors said, Warren, you'll know who it is. And I think it echoes what I think is, is, they said, people want to believe. And I think the important thing is give them something important to believe in. That's the thing I think I've learned is that it's different to just sort of, oh, believe everything will be okay. But let's believe something that's important and valuable and relevant. And then see it. And let's just do it. Let's just do it. I love it when we talk about it a lot, that when people say you can't do something, like, oh, great. Let's do that then. Let's just do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, and, then, and then tell everyone we've done it. That's one of your other slogans. It's difficult, done well, that I see mostly on your marketing. So good, doing well, doing difficult things well. I wish you all the best at continuing to do that and keep them going, keep the smiles on your faces and of those of your staff around here and everywhere else. And thanks so much for coming on the show. And we'll have a chat at some point in the future. Great, look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>